This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And with me again today is Dr. Robert Tasker, who is the Chair of Neurocritical Care here at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor of Anesthesia and Neurology at Harvard Medical School. And we're returning today to do a follow-up and have Dr. Tasker uh, address and answer the questions that emerged following his presentation on traumatic brain injury, which was first broadcast in uh, March of 2013. And the questions that emerged from around the world, uh, and this presentation was viewed on six continents and 44 countries, and the questions that emerged from around the world really fell into a number of themes. Some were related to the PCO2 target for a patient with traumatic brain injury. Others were related to the temperature target for such a patient. Um, still others asked questions regarding neuromonitoring, uh, NEARS, and other forms of brain tissue monitoring. Um, others had questions related to decompressive craniectomy, uh, hypertonic saline versus mannitol, uh, the type of fluid uh, for uh, maintenance fluids, as well as uh, volume resuscitation in a child with traumatic brain injury. And finally, there were questions related to abusive head trauma and uh, protocols to manage children with uh, non-accidental trauma. So Dr. Tasker, I wonder if we could turn to you and uh, perhaps address some of these questions. Okay, thank you, Jeff. Um, what I would like to cover in response to some of the questions that were presented are the first five topics that you talked about. The question of fluid type and volume, specifically in traumatic brain injury, I think is a much broader issue that is also relevant to uh, patients with other forms of brain injury, patients who are post-neurosurgical. And we'll devote one of the World Share Practices Forum uh, meetings to that. And the abusive head trauma, uh, in brief, our guidelines and management is very similar to other forms of head trauma. The questioner was particularly concerned about the types of monitors that we could use in an infant with thin skulls. Uh, and they're absolutely right that there are problems with conventional uh, intracranial pressure monitors. We do use monitoring in this uh, type of infant, but we will discuss that uh, when we do that forum. The first topic was uh, partial pressure of carbon dioxide and the target range that uh, people used. And what I've summarized on the slide uh, that you should be able to see is the data from the respondents from the Americas, Europe, Saudi Arabia, and uh, Malaysia, Singapore, and the Philippines. I've just categorized these um, in order from highest to lowest. And as you can see, the, the majority of respondents are doing the 35 to 40 millimeters of mercury for PCO2. Uh, occasionally, uh, 
people are taking their patients to lower levels, down to 30 uh, millimeters of mercury, and occasionally uh, patients are being allowed to rise to 45 millimeters of mercury. I think in, uh, as I mentioned in the talk uh, and the forum last time, uh, there are few data in this area and that there is evidence of significant ischemia even if you're targeting 40 or 35 to 40 range. So Dr. Tasker, um, again, you did summarize the evidence in the literature, spoke about the Brain Trauma Foundation guideline recommendations, um, and um, I asked you once uh, earlier in the other forum, but uh, could I ask you again, um, in your practice, where do you target the partial pressure of carbon dioxide for a patient with traumatic brain injury, and under what circumstances would you alter that target? I target it at 40 millimeters of mercury, but as I showed you on the slide on the forum, what, I'm try what I try to target and what is actually achieved are two different things. Um, so I target 40, but what we achieve is somewhere between 30 and 40. The only time that we would allow a patient to go below 30 is if we thought we were dealing with an acute neurosurgical emergency and we were on our way to get imaging uh, with a view to a neurosurgical intervention. Uh, if the patient is not responding to the range that we have targeted, then that calls for the next tier in therapies. Could I ask a follow-up question related to the targeted partial pressure of carbon dioxide? Does it matter uh, on the mode of ventilation? For example, some argue that you could target a partial pressure of carbon dioxide of 40 millimeters of mercury utilizing high-frequency ventilation, but because that's uh, lacking phasic ventilation, it may compromise venous return and cross-brain blood flow. Others would argue that the uh, targeted PaCO2 of 40 should preferably be done in a phasic mode of ventilation, whether it's time cycle pressure limited or a volume controlled ventilation, because that phasic mode of ventilation allows for a change in uh, transmural pressure on the right atrium and improved cross-brain blood flow. Is, does that make a difference or or not in your practice and in your view? And is there any evidence to guide us on that? So there are very few studies addressing this. And I categorize this as the combined brain-lung problem. So if you've got a patient with acute lung injury as well as traumatic brain injury or pulmonary contusions and traumatic brain injury or pulmonary aspiration at the scene along with traumatic brain injury, then often uh, you're using these other modes of ventilation to try and optimize oxygen, PCO2, and blood pressure. The few studies that have been done in this area point to having adequate blood pressure and adequate oxygenation as being important over and above what you might be doing with mean airway pressure or uh, PEEP. So uh, how this informs my practice is that I would target in that order, make sure blood pressure is good, make sure PaO2 is good, and then try and get the P 
increase CO2 at 40 millimeters of mercury if I can. Uh, if you're really dealing with a problem of acute lung injury, then it becomes a question of how permissive can hypercarbia or hypercapnia be? Can you let the CO2 go to 45 without compromising the brain? And a long time ago, uh, we looked at this when, at a time when we used to use jugular bulb uh, catheters to actually measure oxygen extraction by the brain at different levels of CO2. And you have to individualize care. So we identified that on a particular day, it was safe to let the patient's CO2 go to 45 without any uh, ischemic parameters using jugular bulb saturation. Uh, on the day previous, we couldn't do that. It had to be at 40. So um, I think this leads nicely into the types of monitoring and neuromonitoring of brain oxygen that we should be considering. Well, that's a, a good uh, lead into some of the questions related to neuroimaging, neuromonitoring, but in particular, there were questions around neuromonitoring that we received. Could you address some of those questions? Sure. Um, one questioner asked about the use of brain tissue uh, oxygen monitoring, and another questioner asked whether uh, there was a role for near-infrared spectroscopy. The guidelines in 2012 did address the whole topic of advanced neuromonitoring. And as you will see from the slide, there was level uh, three or C evidence that if you were going to use brain oxygen monitoring, that you should maintain partial pressure of brain tissue oxygen greater than or equal to 10 millimeters of mercury, and that that target may be considered. Uh, there are very few studies uh, and reports in the pediatric literature of using this. And we know that uh, there is a natural history of brain tissue oxygenation over the first 24 hours after um, traumatic brain injury in adults. Those studies have not been reproduced in children as yet. Uh, but since these devices are FDA approved, uh, we may see more information later. The guidelines uh, pointed towards future studies that needed to be done in terms of neuromonitoring for oxygen, examining critical thresholds, looking at the risk-benefit ratio of targeting certain thresholds, using multimodal neuromonitoring, so combining intracranial pressure monitoring with cerebral perfusion pressure monitoring, blood flow monitoring, and oxygen monitoring. And lastly, how do these influence the decision making? So I, I'm sure there are people uh, around the world who are using this mon these monitors, but there are few data uh, available at the moment. If I had to draw you out on this and ask, uh, if you had um, the following modalities available to you, which would you recommend um, a program acquire and utilize as part of their regular practice for the monitoring of a patient with traumatic brain injury, intraventricular catheter, uh, near-infrared, or brain tissue oxygen monitoring. Uh, which would you recommend um, if a program could only choose one? And uh, if a program could expand uh, their neuromonitoring, which would be the next one that you would add? 
So a number of respondents uh, to the forum last time described their use of intracranial pressure monitoring and it seemed to be even in terms of those that were using intraparenchymal devices and those who were using the um, intraventricular uh, drain or uh, external ventricular drain. And I think if you had to pick just one, uh, it would be the EVD uh, that I would choose. In, t in terms of combining uh, those, if you're an expanding program, uh, for me, that, uh, the question would be down to uh, your research questions that you are looking at, because really in children we don't have enough data to use this for decision making. So if it's part of a, a research program, I think it would be reasonable to expand to all of these uh, other modalities. So uh, that was very helpful. I wonder if we could turn now to some of the questions that emerged around the temperature target for a pediatric patient with traumatic brain injury. Thank you. The respondents around the world uh, told me what uh, temperatures uh, they used, and I've summarized uh, this on the slide. And as you can see, there seemed to be two clear camps. Uh, there were those that were targeting normothermia in general, and there were those that were targeting hypothermia, 33 to 35 degrees, but generally 34 to 35 degrees Celsius versus 36.5 to 37.5. Um, the guidelines actually um, make comment about uh, using hypothermia, that if you're going to use it, you need to use it for long enough. And uh, I think that this dichotomy here reflects the guidelines. There are those who are going to use hypothermia, and there are those who are just going to maintain normothermia. Uh, but again, if we could summarize the evidence in the literature to date, is it a fair statement to say that the evidence is strongest to point to the harmful effects of hyperthermia and that the avoidance of hyperthermia is the fundamental priority and that the evidence suggests that whether cooling works or not is still unproven. Is that a fair summary of the literature? It would be fair to say that the use of hypothermia is unproven whether or not there is an enough evidence from clinical series to say that avoidance of hyperthermia is bad. Uh, there's certainly a lot of experimental literature and case series uh, to say that uh, hyperthermia is bad. Uh, most of us have just taken that evidence and said, right, we're not going to let our patients become hyperthermic. Uh, now. The reason behind the hypothermia, whether that's a neuroinflammatory response and perhaps we should be targeting inflammation rather than just trying to reduce uh, temperature, is uh, something that needs to be studied. In your practice, if a child comes in tonight with pediatric traumatic brain injury, what threshold temperature are you going to try to keep that child's core body temperature below? 
and um, and indeed what core temperature are you going to try to target? Could you answer both questions? If the patient comes in cold, we don't warm them up. If they um, have a temperature over 37.5 degrees Celsius, we try and bring them down closer to 36.5. So we're trying to target somewhere between 36 and 37. Very good. Dr. Tasker, I wonder if we could turn now to the last domain of questions and concerned questions regarding the role of decompressive craniectomy. And these are always difficult decisions. Should you intervene at all? If so, when, early? Or is this something that you reserve for later in the course, three or four days into resuscitation? Uh, what does the evidence say on this, and uh, what is your personal practice? I've passed equipoise in part because of the late outcome studies that I've done in children with severe traumatic brain injury. And uh, a few years ago, we published a uh, report in Journal of Neurotrauma on something that we called the anterior compartment syndrome. And uh, what we identified was a region of hypoperfusion in the anterior circulation in a group of patients with severe traumatic brain injury who had not had decompressive craniectomy. So uh, my uh, concern now is that if someone has refractory intracranial pressure where conventional uh, tiers of therapy are not working, that increasing the space, opening up the box, is the best solution. And uh, a number of people uh, who have um, uh, been involved in this in adults uh, have uh, taken this approach as well. What I'd like to do is just present to you the evidence that we have and uh, let our uh, viewers come to their own decision. The 2012 guidelines identified eight class three studies that met inclusion criteria for severe traumatic brain injury and decompressive craniectomy. Unfortunately, these data couldn't be put together in a conventional meta-analysis, uh, mainly because the selection criteria, technique of decompressive craniectomy, and outcome parameters differed between the studies and that um, there weren't internal comparisons or matched controls. So the reviewers identified that there was no level one evidence, no level two evidence, and for level three evidence they suggested that decompressive craniectomy with duroplasty may be considered in children with traumatic brain injury. There are two studies that I would like to focus on one that has been published and one that uh, is close to completion. This is the decompressive craniectomy in diffuse traumatic brain injury study that was published in the New England Journal in 2011 and this was called the DECRA study. The study was done in Australia, New Zealand and Saudi Arabia and used 15 uh, sites uh, to recruit patients over an eight-year period. 
the patients were aged 15 to 59 years with a Glasgow Coma Scale score of 3 to 8. Uh, so there are some children in this study, although the analysis has not separated out the children uh, so that we don't know exactly what occurs uh, for outcomes in, in children. You had to have refractory intracranial pressure and have been through various tiers of therapy. Your ICP needed to be greater than 20 millimeters of mercury for at least 15 minutes and you had to uh, be within the first 72 hours of injury. Outcome was assessed at six months and the study was uh, would required 210 to be sufficiently powered. These are the results. If you look at it um, superficially, standard care versus decompressive craniectomy and the rate of unfavorable outcome or the rate of um, control of intracranial pressure, you see that there was less unfavorable outcome in the standard care. So you might think that this means that you should not do decompressive craniectomy. The level of control of intracranial pressure was, was better in the decompressive craniectomy group. If, however, you look closely at the patient's selection, and a number of people have commented on this in the literature, you see that the rate of patients with bilateral fixed dilated pupils was almost double in the decompressive craniectomy group than it was in the standard care group. So um, you could argue that the uh, study was biased towards more severely injured patients in the decompressive craniectomy group, which probably explains or possibly explains why there is less unfavorable outcome in standard care. So that's the only key study that has been published. There is an unpublished study as yet because it's not been completed. And if you're interested in this, you can go to the rescueicp.com website. And this is the randomized evaluation of surgery with decompressive craniectomy for uncontrollable elevation of intracranial pressure. Uh, Peter Hutchinson in Cambridge, uh, Adam Brooks Hospital in the UK, is the principal investigator uh, for this study. The study is recruiting patients who are older than 10 years, and so there will be a significant pediatric population in this study. And the entry criteria are refractory intracranial pressure, greater than 25 millimeters of mercury uh, for some 1 to 12 hours. So far, around the world, 366 of 400 patients have been recruited to the study. So uh, the hope is that this will be completed within the next year to 18 months. Well, we look forward to the results of that. Could I ask two follow-up questions, one related to your interpretation of the literature and one related to um, your particular practice? Um, you noted that you were beyond equipoise. 
and then uh, very um, clearly presented the results of the Cooper study, which would suggest that uh, decompressive craniectomy, granted there was a, perhaps a selection bias in how the groups were allocated, but that there was really no favorable evidence to promote decompressive craniectomy uh, as a result of that study. And yet you noted you were beyond clinical equipoise. Is this the accumulation of case series and case reports that has got you to this point? Um, why do you say that you're beyond equipoise? Um, I've published a few studies on late outcome after traumatic brain injury in patients that we've managed in a conventional manner without uh, decompressive craniectomy. And uh, we published a, a case series in the Journal of Neurotrauma a few years ago describing a frontal compartment syndrome where uh, perfusion to the frontal lobes is compromised uh, during raised intracranial pressure. Uh, Dr. Tasker, um, other colleagues around the world had questions related to hyperosmolar therapy. And um, the questions related to um, mannitol versus hypertonic saline. So could you review again your summation of the literature and could you also tell us what is your personal practice? Do you choose one over the other? And if so, why? And, um, and what do you target when you're choosing hyperosmolar therapy in your personal practice? Thank you. So the questioner asked whether or not there had been studies that compare hypertonic saline versus mannitol. There are no studies in the pediatric literature that have done a head-to-head -head comparison. In fact, when you look at the mannitol literature, there are no studies that meet inclusion criteria for the uh, pediatric uh, 2012 guidelines. So essentially our mannitol practice is following uh, what is done in adults. When we've uh, looked at the uh, hypertonic saline literature, there, as summarized on the slide here, there is no level one evidence. There is some level two evidence that hypertonic saline should be considered. And the typical or effective doses for acute use are between 6.5 and 10 mils per kilo of a 3% solution. The level three evidence uh, also comments about considering uh, the use of a continuous infusion of 0.1 to 1 mil per kilo per hour of the 3% solution. And when you're using this therapy, serum osmolality or osmolarity should be less than 360 milliosmoles per liter. In terms of my practice, in the acute or emergency setting, we use mannitol, typically half a gram or 0.25 grams per kilo as a bolus dose from a 20% solution. And then once we're managing these patients on the intensive care unit, our style is to start with boluses of hypertonic saline and then use continuous infusion of hypertonic saline. Very good. Well, as a last question, could we follow up on your personal practice 
And uh, you noted that you try to make the decision within 24 hours, so this is an early intervention if we're going to do it. But what would be the criteria that you look at? I imagine that you're going to suggest intracranial pressure monitoring. So could I ask you um, how you would make the decision if you have an intracranial pressure monitoring device in place and how you might make that decision if you did not have an intracranial pressure monitoring device in place? So if this is a patient with an intracranial pressure monitor in place, if they have an ICP greater than 25 millimeters of mercury, and that pressure is not responding to the various tiers of therapy uh, that uh, you're applying, so all the way down to um, your choice about hypothermia or barbiturates, then uh, I would recommend that that patient has uh, a decompressive craniectomy. In a patient who does not have an intracranial pressure uh, device. Uh, we know from the recent study that was published in the New England Journal from uh, Ecuador and Bolivia that serial imaging might point you towards uh, who should have a surgery or who shouldn't. And I think if you have evidence there of either uh, focal injury, brain swelling, that uh, you would commit to uh, decompressive craniectomy. It's my practice, however, to only work in the first environment. So um, having not worked in the second environment with, with no ICP monitor, uh, it, it might be worth looking closely at the uh, supplementary data that were published in the New England Journal of the exact uh, imaging protocol and surgery guideline that uh, was used in those two countries. It's very helpful. That concludes our World Shared Practices Forum and our follow-up question and answer from Dr. Tasker's presentation on traumatic brain injury. Uh, thank you for joining us and we look forward to talking with you uh, next time. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.